walked out of that room and I walked out of my career, my international career. It's widely believed that this is the phone that has changed phones forever. Turning to our top story this morning, and that is confirmation of the first case of COVID-19 in the Republic. Now, over the next four weeks, we're exploring News Talk's 20 most influential moments of the past two decades. Every day across the station, we're looking back at an influential moment chosen by listeners. Today, we are looking back at a moment that is etched in the memory of anyone who was old enough to remember it at the time. This, Justin, you are looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. The CNN Center right now is just beginning to work on this story, obviously calling our sources and trying to figure out exactly what happened, but clearly something relatively devastating happening this morning there. That moment, of course, is 9-11. To talk more about this, we're joined by Robin Swan, co-author of The Eleventh Day, the full story of 9-11. Robin, it's kind of inarguable. This undoubtedly has been the major story of the 21st century. Yes, and until this this year, we would have thought that nothing could have rivaled 9-11 for both the disastrous nature of the event and the transformative nature of what followed from it. Um, take us back to to uh, that day. Like it was a it was a beautiful day uh, in New York. And um, just take take us through the the horrific events. Sure, eight forty six in the morning in New York, gorgeous day, uh, and suddenly uh, out of that clear blue sky, a a flight from Boston was driven at speed into the North Tower of the two iconic World Trade Centers. Within about 15 minutes, a second plane was flown into the other tower. Um, And within the following hour, uh, a a third plane into the Pentagon and yet another uh, crash diving into a field in Pennsylvania. That plane, we believe, um, was destined for the U.S. Capitol building. Um, So so this horrific event, um, 3,000 people dead on the day, countless others um, it will be tens of thousands by the time the toll is eventually taken, um, will have died from inhaling the, the smoke and dust of the collapsing buildings uh, on that day. Um, and then uh, subsequently a, a, a retaliatory strikes that, that have gone on and, and led us to a foreign policy position where the United States rests today. Yeah, the consequences. Well, actually, before we get to the consequences, I mean, sure. the, the shock that day, I, I will never forget it. I mean, I, it, it is undoubtedly true there were, there have been uh, incidents and, and tragedies where more people have died. But I suppose the fact that it was New York, the fact that it was covered, on, we saw it live unfolding on television. The state of shock that people felt all across the world was was extraordinary. Absolutely. Um I I, th- I was talking last week to a survivor who was in the North Tower that day. And to hear her recall her own shock, they had no basis on which to, to understand what was happening to them as they walked down more than 80 flights of stairs. And when she came out onto that concourse between the two towers and thought she was in safety, 
and then was told to run because they could hear the building start to collapse behind them and was exploded across the concourse and into the plate glass window of a Barnes and Noble bookshop. Then walked north almost three miles uh, to um, a place where she could take a train transport back to her home in New Jersey. And there were people on the train who didn't even give her a seat because they essentially were far enough away from where this tragedy had unfolded that they were uncomprehending of what had actually transpired. So the the whole dissonance, the disconnect of that day for those who, and even those involved, um, was extraordinary. Yeah, shocking. Uh, I worked for a Sunday paper at the time. It happened on a Tuesday, even by the next Sunday. The entire paper was about 9-11. We did not run mm-hmm. any other story. That's how huge a story it was at the time. Just very briefly, and we, we could talk for hours sure. about the consequences, but just briefly, it had an extraordinary knock-on effect on US foreign policy. Well, we know that on the, on the very night of 9-11, there were those in the, in the George W. Bush White House um, who said, um, let's do Iraq. And it was a holdover from a previous administration, that, that of his father, who had thought that uh, the, the regime of Saddam Hussein uh, presented a threat to the United States, and this was the opportunity to go in and clean it up. And in the end, um, there was evidence that was... Uh, all but manufactured. There were confessions extracted under torture, and the United States uh, attacked uh, uh, with force in Iraq, um, a country that had taken had had no role to play in 9/11, um, and, and that has had terrible consequences uh, for many years. Um, the torture of prisoners, lots of U.S. Um, moral leadership was okay. was vacated uh, that day. Robin, uh, thank you indeed for talking to us this morning. Robin Swan, their co-author of The 11th Day, The Full Story of 9-11. Now, in the second part of News Talk's 20 Most Influential Moments, we want to go back to the attacks of September the 11th, 2001, and the seismic change that they brought about in terms of US foreign policy and how we viewed terrorist threats thereafter. I'm joined by Defence Editor with The Economist, Shashank Joshi. Good morning and welcome. Good morning to you. Now, in previous conflicts, it was country versus country. The enemy was easily identifiable. But suddenly you had an enemy and no one was quite sure where the enemy was to be found. That's right. I mean, you know, look at Al-Qaeda. This is an organization whose leadership had been in Sudan, uh, who had been in other countries, who plotted some of the 9-11 attacks from Hamburg in Germany, uh, who had strong ties across the um, Khyber Pass to Pakistan and were now hiding out in Afghanistan, um, not entirely um, uh, with the full enthusiasm of the Taliban who were protecting them. So it was a very murky situation. And we had had Islamist attacks. Of course we had. You know, you'd had Al-Qaeda had blown a hole in the USS Cole, killing many U.S. sailors. They'd blown up U.S. embassies. They'd tried to take down a U.S. plane um, um, in East Africa. But the the uh, attacks, I think, even so, were a complete shock in an age, let's remember when, um, it looked like major war was out of the way. What we had was peacekeeping operations, limited humanitarian interventions, the Cold War was over. This completely changed the way we thought about the nature of modern conflict. 
Mm. Now, in a classic war, you might have fifth columnists within your uh, own society who would be trying to to do you down. But in this situation, um, to to borrow from the IRA, they used to say to the British authorities, um, we only have to succeed once, you have to succeed all the time to you know prevent uh, terrorist atrocities and this gave rise to uh, homeland security in the united states and a, a different attitude a completely different attitude and some would say in the united states a degree of paranoia and securitization of day-to-day life that was actually quite damaging um if you recall uh, you know the thing is we didn't know what we didn't know right and, and so if you think about the the 2001 we had anthrax attacks in America. Anthrax powder was mailed to several U.S. public figures and politicians, and no one knew who it was. We didn't know whether it was Al-Qaeda, another group, um, uh, trying to sort of cause panic. It was a really serious moment. Now, in hindsight, of course, we know that it was probably a disaffected U.S. scientist who sent those letters out. But at the time, it was not at all clear, and that prompted complete panic. We didn't know whether the next attack would be biological, whether it would be chemical, whether it could even be radiological or nuclear. Could Al-Qaeda steal a nuclear bomb? We knew that Pakistani scientists had close links to Al-Qaeda in some cases. And so that sense of not knowing what's over the horizon, not knowing whether the Pentagon, the World Trade Center, uh, were just the tip of a vanguard that was to come, I think that is difficult to remember now in, in the full hindsight of 20 years. It led America on a... a, a a wild goose chase, really. Okay, they got rid of Saddam Hussein in Iraq, but they caused more trouble in so doing than might have been the case if they'd just left him there and allowed sanctions to do the job. Well, uh, you know, I think that's putting it mildly, really. (laughs) You know, Al-Qaeda was on the ropes in Afghanistan. They were squeezed into Pakistan. And drone strikes at that time made a very big difference. They were really pinning Al-Qaeda down. Yes, they had a lot of problems. Yes, they killed civilians. But it is true that they did make it very hard for Al-Qaeda to communicate with each other, to plan operations. and, And it worked. Iraq's a different matter completely, because in Iraq, um, what happened is you had al-Qaeda in Iraq, which which, um, AQI, the group that later turned into Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, ISIS, as we now know it, or Daesh. And um, the collapse of the Iraqi state simply uh, created a vacuum that that ISIS filled with aplomb, in some cases helped, of course, by former members of Saddam Hussein's security apparatus, who were now without a job, with grievances, and they worked very happily with the Sunni jihadists whom they had earlier suppressed as members of Saddam Hussein's government. Um, I think nothing really poured fuel on the fire of the jihadist movement in the Middle East, as did the invasion and, and collapse of Iraq. Um, however bad Saddam Hussein's regime was, that's an empirical fact. So now we're in a situation where um, the the Middle East is in complete turmoil, I suppose. Uh, you've got Reports of Netanyahu going to meet uh, the the crown prince in Saudi Arabia um, denied. I'm not sure what your information is on that, but you've got Iran, the common enemy. You have reports of Donald Trump perhaps contemplating bombing the nuclear facilities of Iran. Um, Do you link all of this back to 9-11? No, no, it's not all back to 9-11, I would say. Lots of these things were simmering away. Uh, Iran's nuclear program predates 9-11, for example. And Saudi-Iran competition, that also predates 9-11. That goes back decades and decades. I think what 9-11 did do, though, is 
uh, several things. It, it, it sucked America and allies into the Middle East with huge commitments. And, and at a macro level, what that meant was China could rise completely unimpeded. And America's armed forces were busy learning how to fight insurgents. And they were, they were as a force, exhausted and worn down and, and didn't invest in the kinds of capabilities and pr- preparation and training they would need for the Asia, Asia Pacific. And really, it wasn't until Donald Trump's administration, I think, that that really changed. Even Barack Obama struggled to change it. Um, I think the other thing is the collapse of Iraq. You know, we've talked about how it poured fuel on the fire of the jihadist movement. The other big thing it did was uh, uh, completely transform Iran's role in the region. Iran was always influential in, in uh, Iraq, but under Saddam Hussein, they were rivals. Saddam Hussein suppressed the country's Shia majority. When the Saddam regime collapsed, the Shia re- majority asserted itself politically. Iran naturally capitalized on that. They had very close links to the Shia community there. And Iran's growth in Iraq, its influence in Iraq, completely changed the balance of power in the Middle East. So, yes, in a sense, I suppose, that was all a post-9-11 change. And that growth of Iranian power along with influence in Lebanon, in Yemen, in other places, I think that has been the defining change of the Middle East and ultimately explains why Israel's prime minister is meeting uh, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia in the Middle East today. That, That ultimately is what it comes down to. Now, what has happened domestically in the United States? I mean, looking at, as you have, the extremist crime database and what it's telling us about Islamic terror being visited upon the territory of the United States versus right-wing terror being visited on the United States. If you look at the big numbers, you have to include 9-11 and that, if you like, skews the figures. But subtracting that massive atrocity uh, reveals some very interesting trends in the United States. Yes, it does. I think it it certainly is the case that right-wing terror in recent years has been a much more serious problem. It's been a deadlier problem. And I think it's also raised some some of us, some of us many of us, including those like myself who, who have been analysts, to question what is terrorism? What do we mean by terrorism? Why is it that we have focused so intensively on Islamist terrorism? It was partly because groups like Al-Qaeda could mount very sophisticated plots um, and do so against airliners in a way that right-wing groups just didn't do at the time. But that has changed. And I think that if if you look at things like the Charlottesville attack, when there was a rally between uh, white supremacists and protesters and someone was killed by a, a white supremacist driving a car into a crowd. Well, you know, that's an act of terror, really. That sort of thing is corrosive. It undermines security. It undermines law and the rule of law. It, it creates sort of profound community tensions. Um, and, and that sort of terrorism directed at, uh, you know, including gay people, we saw in the Orlando shooting several years ago, it is a kind of insidious terrorism that I think um, serious counterterrorism officials realize is a problem. You know, we have the MI5 um, director general in the UK acknowledged this very clearly in, a, in his first speech a few weeks ago. The problem, of course, is that the Trump administration has systematically downplayed this um, uh, for ideological reasons. But I suspect under a Biden administration, we will properly see right wing and right wing extremism uh, be subjected to the scrutiny and careful consideration that it, it deserves. And I think that's a trend we're seeing right across Europe, you know, in Germany, in the UK, in France. I think counterterrorism officials do take this very seriously now. Shashank Joshi, defense editor at The Economist. Thank you very much for uh, joining us. And 
and you're listening to News Talk's Lunchtime Live with Andrea Gilligan. Now you'll know here on the station, News Talk is um, continuing our look back at the 20 most influential moments of the past 20 years. And as you heard all across the station earlier this morning, we are remembering 9-11 today. A series of four coordinated terrorist attacks by the Islamist terrorist group Al-Qaeda against the US happened on Tuesday the, the 11th of September 2001 and an event that changed the world. But we want to ask you, what are your memories? of the day. Were you in the States at the time? Maybe you were an American living here in Ireland. You can get in touch with us. It's 1894531106 is the number if you want to join the conversation live on air this afternoon. But Pat is on the line in Westmeath. Pat, thanks for being with us on Lunchtime Live today. Um, what were your memories of September 11th, 2001? Well, that's 19 years ago in September of uh, 2001. I'll never forget it because it was the year I was getting married. Okay. And about a week beforehand, uh, we had flown to New York. We were staying in Manhattan in Fitzpatrick's Hotel on Lexington Avenue. And it was our first time, myself and my beautiful fiance, Karen. And uh, it was our first time uh, to New York. And we were totally uh, gobsmacked. And we did all the, the sightseeing things and everything that had to be done for the whole week. And on the 9th of uh, September, um, I visited the Twin Towers. Oh, nice. And I remember getting a taxi um, down to it and going into the, there was a big mall, like a big shopping mall underneath, and walking around underneath this huge big mall. And then I saw the queues for the the actual tower itself. And I said, ah, no, I'm not going to bother going up. So I just hung around the mall for a while and got a coffee and whatever, and then eventually um, took a taxi back to the, the hotel. But, we flew back on, on the um, 10th back to Ireland because I was getting married on the 12th. Oh, you were getting married here, back I home. I was getting married back here right. on the 12th. But the unusual thing was the, the, the old, uh, we were getting married in an old country churchyard and um, the nearby uh, Georgian Manor was holding the reception for us. But it was a hotel that used to cater for American tourists. And there were 70 American tourists who were booked in that day and couldn't be diverted anywhere else for my wedding. So I ended up having 70 American tourists at my wedding right. in, in Castle Bailey in County Westmeath, oh, yeah. just outside Moat. And um, they, couldn't, they, couldn't, um, they couldn't fly home. Um, they were all, some of them were, 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 had relations and everything in the Twin Towers. There was one old lady there, and her grandson um, had been in the Twin Towers. He was working in an accountancy firm in, in the Twin Towers. And all communications were down, all telephone lines were down, and she heard nothing. And three days later, she got a uh, telephone call from him to say that, Granny, I didn't go in that day because um, I was out for a few drinks the night before and I couldn't get up to go in. <laughs> it's um, it's so hard to believe it's 19 years ago, isn't it? It's, it's 19 whole years yeah. ago. 19, 19 whole years ago. And I'll never forget it because... Um, as I say, 9-11 happened on the 11th, obviously. I got married on the 12th. Right. And then the following day, the 13th, was my birthday. Right. So, you've, you've, so I'll never forget yeah, my wedding you'll, anniversary. You'll, you'll never forget it. Well, it's a good, a, good, a, good, a good reminder. Maybe that's a good thing too, Pat. Um, <laughs> I want to ask you about the, the 70 or so um, yeah. American guests that kind of by yeah. default, you know, ended ended up at your, your wedding. Um, yeah. It it must have been it must have been very difficult for them. Well, the the, the management of the hotel um, managed to um, bust them away for the first half of the the, the day, 
um, while while the the meals was go, were going on the speeches and things like that, and they brought them on, on some sort of a little tour uh, for for a few hours. But then they arrived back in for the after. But uh, they were very good, and they all contributed something into a card, and they gave us a a, a wedding card as a right. present uh, for having them at their wedding. Yeah. In fact, uh, on the tenth anniversary of um, the Twin Towers, um, there was an article in the Irish Independent. And uh, it was from an old lady who said that she had been in Ireland that day and she'll never forget the um, homeliness and, um, you know, how, how nice the Irish people were mm. for putting up with them and looking after them at an Irish wedding. I don't believe you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you And you spotted that, obviously, you saw it in the Indo. I think my mother-in-law actually saw it in the indoor yeah. and brought it to our attention. Yeah, that's absolutely. a great story. Yeah. Listen, stay with us, Pat, because um, Jen also joins us here as well in uh, in in County Monaghan. Um, Jen, what was your memory of uh, September 11th? Well, I was in the states at the time. Um, I had been living over here in the year 2000, and I'd met the man I was going to marry. Right. And uh, so my wedding also played into this because I was planning my wedding in Ireland for November of that year. So when the towers came down, um, gosh, the, the horrible shock um, of being in the U.S. and, and having this attack, mm-hmm. and then, then shortly thereafter wondering if I was going to get married in Ireland. Yeah. Um, would my guests want to fly here? Would I want to fly here? Um, in just a few short weeks afterwards. There was such a, uh, was a, a fear or an anticipation for quite a long period after that about uh, people flying anywhere, really. Well, um, what I don't know what it was like in Ireland, but in the U.S. at the time, um, say, television stations didn't go back to normal for a full month. Um, it was news constantly. So none of the regular television shows. So we were watching the news constantly for a month. And it took a while for flights to mm-hmm. go back to normal. Um, so then to ask my guests to, uh, and, and 14 of my guests did fly to did my they? wedding in Ireland in November. In, in Monaghan? Uh, we actually got married in Dundalk. Oh, okay. Um, well, we got married far. 19 years ago yesterday. Right. Yesterday, okay. It's it's yeah. interesting that both yourself and um and Pat, you know, both of your memories or both your stories relate to your you know your, your weddings. It's it's certainly uh, certainly as Pat said, a day that you you, you won't forget. Um, where right. were you in the states? Sorry, Jen, did you say at the time when it happened? I was in the states. Um, I was um in Utah, so we okay. were two hours behind New York. So by the time I woke up, it was happening already. Um. But interestingly enough, I worked for a company, and I had an office in New Jersey, and my office windows overlooked the Twin Towers um, over the river. So I could see them from my office. Um, and I wasn't in New Jersey yeah. at the time, but, but yeah. imagine me thinking, the time. you know, my, that office that I had there. Um, so I had a connection to the towers as well. The, can and you get, I had friends who yeah. worked in New York. Can you give us a sense of what it was like trying to, you know, obviously um, communications were down, but trying to make contact with people in New York at the time when it happened? It was impossible. Um, You waited for days to find out um, if people were all right. Um, Phone lines were jammed and, you know, it's weird, such an event like that, you don't remember everything. Mm. Um, I look back and think, gosh, what did I do? And I can't remember because we were in such a state of, state of shock, you only remember uh, sort of odd things. Um, and, but I do know it took, us, it took us days 
to find out that my coworkers um, out of that office were all all right. Um, you're here, obviously, living in, in Monaghan um, at the moment or for the, for the past couple of years, certainly. Anyway, Jen, is it something when you talk to family back home? Is it, you know, is it something, an incident or a time that you, you would talk about on a, you know, maybe on a, well, I don't want to say on a regular basis, but is, is it something that's still a topic of conversation? We will often talk about it um, when the anniversary comes up. Um, and it is an anniversary that is recognized um, by a day of service. Mm-hmm. In the U.S., um, I believe it's named Patriot Day, but a lot of us it, it's dealt with serving those in the community. Mm-hmm. I'm going to bring um, Eric in as well, Jen. Eric is on the line here in Lunchtime Live and is in Galway at the minute. Um, what, were, what were your memories, Eric, of uh, September 11th, 2001? Well, it's going to be a day that uh, is ingrained in my mind. Um, I just happened to be in Washington D.C. for a medical conference. And I was staying at a hotel across the street from the White House. I think it was the Marriott. And I always request the top floor to get a good view. So when I saw the on CNN that the planes were crashing into the two towers, I was going, my God, I can't believe mm-hmm. this is happening. So I picked up my cell phone and I called my wife and she was in Chum. And we're having a conversation saying, can you believe what's happening here? And then I look out the window and I go, oh, my God, here comes one this way. And I looked out there and I saw a plane skimming the tops of the trees with its engines just blazing there was smoke blaring out of it and i actually thought it was heading for the white house but then it kind of dipped over changed a little bit and then it dropped down the below the pentagon and then i saw a huge explosion pop up into the sky and so i was on my wife she's going are you okay are you okay yeah. <laughs> and so it was you, kind you, of a an interesting time you literally witnessed it happen eric oh i saw it happen i saw yeah. the plane crash I had a lot of people actually tell me it was a missile. And I'm going, no, 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 it was an airplane. Two engines, they were just billowing with full speed when they came in. And it came down just over the tops of the trees and blew up in the Pentagon. You must have been terrified watching that from across the road. More of a state of shock of what was going on. One of the things that uh, really surprised me to this day, I'm kind of really shocked that the front lawn of the White House didn't open up and a missile barrage would come out to protect it. I really expected something to come up to take that plane out because it was approaching the center of the government of the United States of America, and it made it completely through. But after that, I did notice, since I was so high up in the hotel, I noticed all the buildings down below me started filling up with snipers on the roofs. So I stayed up there watching this going, this is amazing. And then CNN pulled me in for an interview too because I was one of the few people that actually saw the plane crash into the Pentagon. It, it, listen, listening to you describing this here, Eric, today, you know, on, on, on News Talk, it, it nearly sounds like a scene from a movie. It would have been a very graphic scene for a movie, the way it displayed out there. It, you couldn't see the, the special effects doing any better than what you saw out there. It was just a total shock to yeah. see. I can still see the explosion popping up from the side of the Pentagon, then the plume of smoke coming up. And in the aftermath of all of this, Eric, it, it, it must have been just uh, frantic. It was a surreal experience in, in Washington. Uh, uh, goodness, the police were everywhere. The people were out in the streets scrambling around. Uh, I went up to have a look to see what had actually happened out there at the Pentagon, but I didn't get too close to it at the time. It was fairly well sealed off. Um, but, um, yeah, it was kind of strange. Uh, the, the skies over Washington, D.C. were filled up with F-16s, fully armed with missiles, going back and forth. The, the snipers on all the rooftops. 
it was a it's a memory. Yeah, absolutely. You were obviously, as you mentioned, you were in Washington, D.C. when this happened. How long were you there for afterwards? I, I presume the conference didn't go ahead after all of this. <laughs> the conference held about a half day session so they wouldn't have to refund everyone. <laughs> Uh, but after that, uh, the airports were closed for a while, and then I was fortunate to be one of the first planes to come back to Ireland. I've been living in Ireland for 30 years, okay. and so when I got to the airport, as soon as you got within maybe two, 300 meters to the airport, all cell phones cut off. So they were actively mm-hmm. jamming all the cell phones around the airport. And you, you were in that unusual position, as you mentioned, where you were talking to your wife. Did you say she was in tune at the time in Galway? She was, yeah. yeah so the, she couldn't believe it was happening because she, yeah. wa- she watched the plane crash too as it came on Sky News later on and she couldn't believe I was there and actually mm. saw it happen. Because it's, With it's a 30-second delay between when it was transmitted and when she heard me say, oh my God, here comes one this way. <laughs> and it's funny because just from speaking to Jen there in Monaghan um, a few moments ago, obviously that, you know, trying to make contact with people and, and, and family members abroad and trying to get a hold of loved ones and, 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 and colleagues to find out the people were okay. But I suppose you had that... Um, Maybe I was lucky, if you could call it that, you know, situation that you were actually on the phone to your wife at the time when it happened. I kind of felt sorry for my wife because she didn't know if I was destroyed by a bomb or not at that time because it went off and it was just, oh, here it comes this way. And it was just, are you okay? Are you okay? And I do have to admit, I kept my eyes open for more planes coming in. I was glued to the window for the next few hours (laughs) to see if more was coming in. Unbelievable. Did you you, have any issues travelling over and back in the aftermath of all of this, Eric? Were you... Afraid to travel? Or? Um, no, 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 I'm not afraid to travel. If it's, uh, it's just one of those things. It was very rare for something like that, yeah. that to happen. But even at the time? Uh, but no, tra- even at the time didn't bother me flying, yeah. flying okay. back to Ireland and such. And even I came back to the States about three weeks later and then I wasn't nervous flying at all. Okay. I have a text in here from a listener who says um, friends of mine, an Irish girl and Argentinian guy uh, were visiting New York and have a picture of the two of them standing um, on the top of one of the towers dated at 9.10. They're now happily married and living in Texas. That comes in from Sean and Lucan. This listener says I was living in Yonkers and I was on the phone to Bell Atlantic paying my bill when the lady at the other end of the line started crying and I was oblivious to what was going on. She told me to turn on the TV and I just froze. My first reaction was to try and get and get in contact with my husband, which I did. He was in the building on Midtown and I could see everything happening in the distance. I immediately rang home to Ireland to let them know we were okay before all the phone lines went down and that day was spent waiting on friends to return from the city. Thankfully, we didn't lose anyone very close that day, but it was surreal. And for the next few months, there was an emptiness right across uh, New York as well. Listen, um, Eric, Jen and Pat, thanks very much for your time here on Lunchtime Live today and for sharing your memories of 9-11. For the second uh, uh, of our looks at some of the most important events of the last 20 years and today it's 9-11. Now we have reported before uh, on the show as to when the US shut its airspace after the attacks. Hundreds of flights had to be rerouted. Many of them were redirected to an airport called Gander, a small town in Newfoundland. Within the course of a day, its population had swelled from around 10,000 to 17,000. Joe Ryan, a Limerick businessman, was on a Delta flight when it was rerouted to Gander and he joins us now on News Talk. Afternoon, Joe. Yes, good afternoon, Sean. Uh, Thank so, you for inviting me to speak with you today. And thanks very much for uh, coming on, on the programme. How long were you into the flight when you were told that something was wrong? 
So about three hours uh, into the flight from Shannon to Atlanta, so approximately 90 minutes from New York uh, in the air. And what did they tell you specifically? Well, the captain came on to announce that due to an air traffic control issue, uh, he could not fly into the US and uh, began to fly in a circular pattern. Um, So that went on for about two hours. And and then he advised us that uh, we would be landing in Gander, that uh, the flight was diverted to Gander, Newfoundland. And during that period, were you able to glean or anybody in the plane able to find out any information as to what actually the cause was? No, no, absolutely not. The, um, the only information that you know, we got from the captain was there was no difficulty with the aircraft. It was an air traffic control issue. Right. OK. But at the same time, there must have been a feeling on the plane even then that there might have been more to it than that. Honestly, no. Uh, I think people were just uh, anxious about you know, how long this diversion was going to take. And, you know, I had a connecting flight in Atlanta, so clearly I was going to miss that. And other people had connecting flights and so forth, or people waiting for them on arrival in Atlanta. Um, so, yeah, it was it was strange. Um, the reality of what was going on didn't emerge until about three hours later when we actually landed in Gandhar Airport. And when you landed in Gander, obviously it's a it's a tiny wee place. And and when you got off the plane, what did you see? Because as I understand, well, so many planes were diverted there. Yeah, I think in excess of thirty, and we were um, I think number twenty four or twenty five to land. Uh, getting off the plane wasn't such an easy thing. Um, between the time that I set foot on the plane at Shannon, and set foot on the tarmac at Gander, in excess of twenty hours passed. Uh, and the majority of that time was actually on the plane on the tarmac in Gander Airport. When we landed and came to a, a complete stop, it was then that the captain announced uh, that what was going on. And uh, I'll always remember his announcement, which went along the lines of, I've been flying for 30 years. I retire next week. And never did I anticipate that I'd have to tell passengers what I now have to tell you. And then he informed us that two planes had flown into the Twin Towers, another had crashed into the Pentagon building, and that a fourth plane at that time was unaccounted for. And the US airspace was closed and that we would remain on the aircraft until we got further updates. So that was when we first realized this was pretty serious. And Mm. there was, you know, for the whole of, 60 seconds after that announcement, you could hear a pin drop. Uh, There was disbelief. There was shock. There were a number of children on board who were on their way to Disneyland. Um, So they started to cry. um, And then the air air stewardesses were bombarded with questions. How long will we be on the ground? When do we get to the terminal building? Will the aircraft return to Ireland? For which they had no answers. They were very calm, they were very courteous, um, but they knew as much as we knew from what the captain told us. And so about for every hour, we're getting an update from the captain saying, you know, the airspace was closed. And eventually he said, we'll disembark, but with 30 aircraft on the ground, it's going to take some time. So 
we were on the <coughs> we were probably on that aircraft for thirteen or fourteen hours before we eventually got to disembark. And when you got off the plane, uh, what was the security like? Very intense. Um, <coughs> so we were guided through security where all hand luggage was x-rayed with great scrutiny. So I can <coughs> recall a passenger in front of me who had like your regular 200 pack of duty-free cigarettes mm. and they were breaking them down into individual packs of 20 and x-raying each individual package. What we didn't know at the time, which we learned later, was that there was a suspicion that there were more terrorists on planes landing in Gander, and they were not taking any chances. When you got through, then uh, got through the uh, um, the security, um, was it difficult? Were there people on hand because it, an awful yeah. lot of people there all of a sudden to to, to yeah. bring you to a place to stay for the night and that kind of thing? Yeah, so approximately 6,500 passengers landed. Uh, in, and Gander has a population of 10,000 people. Hmm. So it's a huge, huge impact um, for them. But the, the Red Cross uh, kicked into action. After security, we were taken to a big room. Uh, you know, there were lists of where we were going. We were told we were going to go to a place called Lewisport, which is one hour journey north of Gander. Um, we were provided with a sandwich and a bottle of water. And, um, you know, we were put on this school bus and then transported to Lewisport. Um, so Lewisport is a very rural area uh, near an inland lake or sea. Uh, it probably has about 3,000 of a population or maybe even less. So we arrived at a big community centre um, on the edge of Lewisport. And to find, you know, about 200 people, some children lying on the floor on blankets, um, a temporary kitchen at the end of the community centre. And it was then for the first time that we caught sight of a television, which was showing the images of the planes flying into the towers. And, you know, only then did the significance of what occurred really dawn on me and the other passengers. You know the saying, picture paints a thousand words, yeah. or is better than a thousand words? That absolutely was the case. Yeah. So, you know, and there were you know, about 200 people in this centre milling around. Um, and I, as we were a group that arrived together, there's probably about 20 of us just staring at the television in disbelief. So, and as it turned out, of course, nobody could answer the questions at the at the time, but you were there for a week or, or more, was it? Yes, so um, I eventually returned to Ireland on Sunday, uh, departing Gan uh, Gander on Saturday. Um, so, uh, yeah, we were there in the Lewisport area. Um, shortly after arriving at the centre, uh, a small group of us who were clearly uh, travelling on their own, we were single people, without families. So we were asked to go to another centre to help with um, keeping families together. That centre turned out to be a mile away and it was an Anglican church with a congregation for about 100 people. So we arrived at the church, greeted by the Anglican minister, who was really very welcoming and friendly. And we were given blankets, toothbrush, toothpaste, a, a soap, and said, find a place to you know, park yourself where you want to sleep for tonight. And uh, 
I think at one stage he, he happened after saying that he was happened to be looking at me and I said, well, you know, why break with a lifetime tradition? The back of the church is pretty good for me. <laughs> so, so we, you know, that's where I parked myself and we were there. This the church had a tiny kitchen, an office and a bathroom. But uh, thankfully, the following day, uh, nearby school was made available to us. It was open so we could use the showers. But more importantly, we had access to the computer room. So I was able to communicate by email to my family. I had I had been able to get through to them on the phone before I left the aircraft in Gander um, to, to reassure them that I was safe and sound and so forth. Um, you know, they had been trying to get in contact with Delta. My work colleagues were trying to get in contact with Delta to find out what was going on. So you had this huge information void and the days rolled into nights while we were there at the, at the church, and you know, it was all about information. You mm. know, when are we going to get an update? Are we going to go back to Ireland? Are we going to go on to the United States? Um, and all the time, you had CNN pictures on the television just replaying and replaying the towers collapsing, the emergency efforts going on, the loss of life. Um, so it was a pretty strange experience to, to go through. And the people there were they for the most part were they patient? Did they understand that uh, there was oh, only so much uh, they could be told? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think I think what helped greatly was the the attitude and the generosity of spirit of the the people in Newfoundland. Um, they're incredibly welcoming. They're incredibly friendly. Um, so it was a they portrayed an era calm. And helpfulness, which which was really uh, probably unheard of. I know it's been documented well, and you know you have you had people turning up to these centres and to the church, offering to take you to their homes, to give you a, your dinner, to let you use their shower and bathrooms and so forth. Um, so it, it, they were incredibly generous in spirit, and so it was amazing. I think that's been well documented uh, in, in various publications and reports, mm. but. But for me, I think something that hasn't probably got the level of publicity that it deserves was the actions of the Red Cross. They took six and a half thousand people from an airport, put them on buses, sent them to centers around, uh, you know, Gander area, probably sometimes two hours away. Um, and they really ensured that the community in the different locations rallied around the passengers. Um, provided food, provided um, bathroom facilities in their own homes. It was incredible. Yeah, uh, it really was one of those weeks, I suppose, where you saw people at their worst and people at their absolute best as well. As yes, I understand indeed. it, when you when you finally got on a plane uh, uh, for your journey back home, it was to Atlanta and you did actually pass over New York. Yes, that was a, a rather surreal experience because as we're passing over the New York area, um, the captain brought everybody's attention to the plumes of smoke and dust still coming from the towers. Um, so it was quite emotional for uh, for the, a lot of the Americans that were there. Some of them started to sing their national anthem. Um, for them, they had been attacked. Their country was at war. Um, there was a huge loss of life in one of their biggest cities. Um, no, no American would have expected that. So it was a really, really um, significant time 
in their lives. And uh, it was surreal yeah. to see these uh, plumes of smoke five days later. What an extraordinary time in all our histories. Joe Ryan, thanks very much for talking to us today. It's the Hard Shoulder. I'm Mark Hagney and for Kieran Cuddihy. And now, over the next four weeks, uh, we at Newstalk are exploring Newstalk's 20 most influential moments of the past two decades as chosen by you, the listeners. Today, we're looking back at two, September 11th, 2001, one of the worst terror attacks in modern history and a day that is etched in many people's memories forever. It was a turning point in terrorism, instilling a new level of fear in people across the globe. So are we still facing the same threats? And indeed, can we anticipate what's ahead? Well, to talk more about this, I'm joined on the line from the US by Colin P. Clark, who's the author of After the Caliphate, the Islamic State and the Future uh, Terrorist Diaspora. And from the UK by Chris Phillips, who's the former head of the UK National Counterterrorism uh, Security Office. Gentlemen, uh, good evening to both of you. Thank you for joining us on The Hard Shoulder. Chris, if I could start with you, it, it is hard to believe that there may be people um, who are listening to us who won't remember too much about uh, 9-11 or know much about it other than from their history books. So could you just remind us of the events of that day? Yes, certainly. Well, of course, uh, it's difficult to go back in time now and uh, remember the end of the 90s. And there was a lot of lot of uh, nice feelings around, really, about the end of the Cold War. And, 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 you know, a lot of countries were talking about reducing their military and things. Uh, and at the same time, uh, through Afghanistan and other countries, uh, there was a group of people that basically wanted to destroy the Western world. And, uh, and what we saw on 9-11 was was um, a very well-organized, well-planned, well-rehearsed uh, attempt at, uh, at, at really damaging the United States of America. And, and that was done by using aeroplanes and, and uh, taking those aeroplanes over and crashing them into, into key buildings within the United States. And, and of course, this uh, brought home um, all sorts of issues to the US, who really, I think, always felt quite... Um, uh, away from the terrorist problems of the world. Um, but uh, it was all brought home that day. And of course, since then, we've had a series of other really bad attempts at doing similar things. Uh, and the, the threat has changed and evolved over the last uh, 20 years. But uh, it's still there and it's still a major problem for the world. What made 9-11 different from other incidents that had taken place? Was it the fact uh, well, it, that it was on the continent, continental United States that, that their uh, sovereign territory had been breached for the first time since Pearl Harbor? Yes, I think uh, that was certainly a, a key point. But also it was televised. Also it was live. It was played around the world as it was happening. And, uh, and I think all these things put together um, really brought it home to the world that no one was safe, no one in any major city. And I, I, I don't think for a minute that the residents of New York or any of the other major cities that were attacked that day actually ever thought that um, the, the, the world of terrorism would envelop them as it did that day. And, uh, and of course, it made it changed the world. It changed the world incredibly. And uh, the US uh, changed dramatically as a result of that attack. Uh, and uh, the UK and Europe uh, and other countries across the world are reaping the whirlwind of all these uh, all these terrorist attacks that have happened since. Mm. One, of, one of the things that tends to I, I mean, people talk about the enormity of 9-11 and what happened. 
and and they talk about it in a sort of a geopolitical sense. They forget about the, what is it, how many thousand lives, 3,000 uh, plus lives and the affected families and the ripples of that. I mean, that loss of life in one go anywhere in the world is a, is a global tragedy. It is a global tragedy, was a global tragedy. And of course, there'll be many other people that would would still be suffering the consequences. Uh, and many others have actually died since because of the, the, the poisoning from the rubble and the dust. Uh, and, um, you know, many people will have been affected uh, just simply by watching it on the television because it was such a shocking, horrific uh, incident mm-hmm. uh, and as I say it was live on television and that uh, that just makes it far more real for everyone okay well just that was just to bring for for, for as I said many people now view it almost from a historical point of view or from from books and magazines they those of us who are old enough uh, and let's face it it's not that long ago actually watched it like a television program like a news bulletin which is quite an extraordinary thing to say but it was also it it it, uh, it gave us a, a new name, a new um, um, nemesis in Al Qaeda, because the vast majority of us had never heard of Al Qaeda before that, or, or had heard very little about them. And and Al Qaeda, we even at that stage we thought of them as a as an organisation, you know, like the PLO or wh- whatever, you know, a terrorist organisation. But actually, they they weren't the same as those organisations. They had a, a, a franchise terrorism model going on. Explain that to us. Yeah, well, the interesting point is that most terrorism throughout the generations, throughout, there's always been terrorism of one form or another. It's usually been very localised and it's been really about land, ge- geopolitical terrorism about, you know, get off my land and we'll stop fighting. Uh, and if you think of the troubles in Northern Ireland and you think of Sri Lanka and all the other countries across the world, it's usually fairly limited to the area that it's uh, that, that it's about. Uh, this is about ideological ideology and the way people live and and the what people believe in uh, and i think for that reason this makes this uh, huge and a, an ongoing and continuing problem for the world now given what what happened uh, with 911 and you know the fact that and the americans have admitted this they were caught um, and and what made it even more horrific or more awful was that they actually did have uh, information just they hadn't collated it properly or they didn't have the algorithms um 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 the the they had the digital raw data but they didn't actually have the algorithms uh, to put all their ducks in a row and be prepared and ready for this so you would have thought after that 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 we would have become better at fighting terrorism better at dealing with it has that been the case well very much so and uh effectively for you know for, as i mentioned earlier the 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 west was still coming to terms with the the, the end of the cold war uh, and really didn't have a huge uh, enemy system in place uh, and uh it wasn't really focused on on the issues that we're now seeing and that, that were there bubbling away in the background and it's easy to look back in hindsight to say well the US should have had should have done more about it but uh, this was this did really come in left field and and whilst you can always look back and say well we should have done that we should have done this you know I think everyone was caught off guard with this mm. uh, with this attack one of the uh, the, the unintended consequences of it was that, as, as I said, the the US and their security systems had all of this raw intel, this raw data. They they didn't have the algorithms to uh, to process it properly or, you know, to make sure that, that information was getting to the right people or, or to even know what to do with it. But there were nascent and burgeoning social media companies who were and they then came in and of course we, we had the rise of surveillance capitalism and, and all of that. But it, it saw... Uh, 
in parallel with 9-11 and its aftermath, there was a huge explosion of social media and they now rule the world to all intents and purposes. But as, as a result of that rise, it has also made the proliferation of, of terrorists online easier and harder for people like you to police. Very much so. And, and actually, you know, if you, if you actually examine this, social media as such a huge part to play in terrorism, full stop, and an overthrow of countries. If you think of the Arab Spring and all the countries that uh, were supposedly released from tyranny, uh, they, that was all really made possible by the use of social media. And, and suddenly, uh, governments uh, and very strong leaders were unable to control their population. And to some extent, that's what we're seeing now across the US, across the UK and, and, uh, and Europe, where, where people, through you can use social media to actually manipulate people hmm. uh, and also get people gathered together in big crowds. And that, that becomes very difficult for the government of the day to handle. Uh, you're listening to, to uh, the Heart Shoulder on News Talk. It's uh, it's ten minutes to five. I'm also that was Chris Phillips, their former head of the UK National Counterterrorism Security Office. I'm also joined on the line from the uh, US by Colin Clark, who's a research fellow at FPRI and author of After the Caliphate. And uh, uh, Colin, thank you very much for staying with us. Uh, and really, what I want to talk to you about so much is not 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 so much the origins of where we are right now, but what the future of it is, uh, and something that you call. The accelerationists, and by the way, this is not not all about uh, Middle Eastern or or Islamic based terrorism. There's all sorts of forms of terrorism running from I- ideological and theological right the way right across the spectrum to the extreme right. Yeah, I think that's what we're dealing with now. Is we still have these uh, groups like Al Qaeda and the Islamic State to deal with, uh, but in addition, we're dealing at least in the United States with. Uh, the rise of neo-Nazis and violent white supremacists, including, you know, groups that maintain transnational linkages uh, and have uh, connections to places like Europe, to the Ukraine, uh, further afield to Australia, uh, as we saw with the um, Christchurch uh, attack that was that took place last year. So uh, there's no shortage of uh, terrorist actors, of violent non-state actors on the agenda. And I think, you know, in 2020, heading into 2021, it, the the field of terrorism is probably more diverse than at any point in recent memory. Um, as somebody who studies this area, would you be worried about domestic terrorism the, in the future in America, given how divided the country is as a result of the election? I, I, I don't know that it has ever been more divided than since the Civil War. And I mean, you saw what happened with the, uh, the is it the governor of Michigan or uh, governor of Illinois? Yeah, Michigan. Michigan. That, that was absolutely extraordinary. I mean, if I saw something like that in a movie coming out of the US, I'd be going, ah, oh, lads, come on, you're stretching it a bit there. But this actually happened. Yeah, I've said that to myself numerous times over the past four years that this doesn't seem like it would even pass muster in a movie. Um, but, you know, uh, absolutely concerned about the rise of domestic terrorism. Uh, we are now uh, entering eight or nine months of kind of lockdown due to COVID-19, which the Trump administration um, has been completely inept in dealing with. Um, it's essentially tried to ignore it. Uh and so people are anxious. They're angry. Uh, in the United States, we're also approaching record gun and ammunition sales. Uh, people are more polarized than ever before. Uh, and so I think we're uh, – and, and moreover, even though President Trump lost the election, 
he's refused to to, to concede. Uh, He's essentially attempting to paint the Biden administration as illegitimate and fueling uh, those who support him with the rhetoric that this administration stole the election. So you have people that are angry. Uh, We're, you know, entering a recession. So they're uh, struggling financially. Uh, They're well armed. And, you know, that that makes for a kind of, uh, I think, perfect storm that's likely to sow the seeds for uh, for domestic terrorism to be a major issue for the foreseeable future. Well, I mean, you have had uh, notable incidents of uh, of domestic terrorism, I, I suppose. Was Oklahoma City the worst? Uh, yeah, in terms of casualty counts, that was the worst uh, in 1995, perpetrated by Timothy McVeigh. But you know, we uh, we've had incidents in El Paso, Texas, and I'm talking to you today uh, from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I was actually living less than a mile from the Tree of Life synagogue when that shooting happened, mm. Robert Bowers in uh, October 2018. So uh, again, uh, the the other complicating factor is that in the United States, we don't have a domestic terrorism statute. So we, we, we've never designated any organization as a domestic terrorist group. And that's something that a lot of folks in my industry, in the terrorism studies community, you know, counterterrorism analyst community, have been pushing policymakers to reconsider. Uh, yeah, well, I think you might get a... a, a, a a more open-minded hearing uh, with the uh, the incoming uh, um, um, government than you would have with the outgoing one. But look, uh, we're going to leave it at that. For, it, it's a fascinating subject, and obviously, you know, there's there's uh, uh, years, decades of research gone into it. And and I suppose the appalling thing is is, is that we we are no close closer to an answer. We're no closer to a, a a falling off in terrorism. There is more of it, and more angry people, angry about more, and more willing to take up arms, and more willing to kill the people they disagree with. Which, you know, for, for a planet that is supposed to be evolving and getting more civilised and getting more efficient and getting better, it seems to be uh, uh, absolutely uh, inexplicable and unthinkable. Uh, and, and the word intelligence doesn't seem to work in there anywhere. I, you know, I don't have any answers. I just, I don't understand how we keep doing this to each other. Um, it's a fascinating subject. Um, and I want to thank uh, Colin Clark, who's a research fellow at uh, FPRI and author of After the Caliphate, and also Chris Phillips, who's former head of the UK National Counterterrorism uh, Security uh, Office. Mm-hmm.